Welcome to the Church at Lake Mead, and this is our sermon podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, we want to say thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you again soon. Here is today's message. I'm just excited about this last sermon, and I pray that this series has blessed you. Um, It's been quite a journey. We've been looking at the teachings of Jesus around the end times. We've been looking at the the book of Revelation, and uh, one of the things I wanted to really make sure got across is that when we learn about the end times, when we teach on the end times, it shouldn't frighten us. It should encourage us, right? Because Jesus wins. Can I get an amen to that? Like, and if Jesus wins and you're with Jesus, then that means you win, right? I win. We're on the winning team. And so if, if the end times topic has scared you in the past, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, friend, that's not the purpose, right? The purpose isn't to frighten us. The, fir- the purpose is to encourage us. And we've been saying this all, all you know, series long, that the point of prophecy in the Bible isn't primarily to give you a roadmap of the future, right? But to encourage faithfulness in the present. And that's what I pray this series has done. I pray it's caused you to think hard about your life, to think hard about like, where am I at? What are my values? What is it that I'm doing with this short span of time that I've been given? Am I faithful to the lamb? And if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that Jesus is presented in the book as a lamb that was slain. And the question that's always asked is, are we faithful to the lamb? Are we faithful to the lamb or are we gonna be complicit with the beast? And that's kind of the decision that we need to make as we look at this this story, this text, this sermon series. It's, it's It's to envision faithfulness to the lamb. Um, I want to think about uh, just this idea too, as we, as we get started, that when you look at the, the vision that John had in the book of Revelation, it's a, it's a hostile world. It's full, of, it's full of beasts and dragons and false prophets and antichrists. And in that world, uh, Christians are, are chased and persecuted. <clears throat> and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The early church, the seven churches that the letter is written to, they're being tempted, right? The people in Thyatira, we looked at them and they're being tempted to be, uh, to offer, to offer, you know, sacrifices to Apollo Tyrannaeus in, in so that they can be a part of the economic system there. And today we're not tempted in that way, but we're tempted in, our, in other ways. We're tempted to be maybe dishonest in our jobs or to not really keep our hearts and minds focused on Jesus. We're letting greed or other things drive our decisions. And so this entire series is meant to to not keep the book of Revelation in the distant future, but to bring it into our present and to keep before us this question, like how's my journey with Jesus? You know, how am I living out my life? I want to transition now to this last two chapters in the book of Revelation, this final vision that John has. And it's this beautiful picture of heaven descending to earth. And it's not only just the end of the book of Revelation, it's the fitting end for the biblical story that started in Genesis in a garden and ends in Revelation in a city. So let's look at it. This is Revelation 21. Here's what it says. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. 
You know, some people have read that and they get really bummed out. They're like, oh man, my favorite place on earth is the ocean. And we're told there's no sea. Is there no beach in heaven? Like my wife right now doesn't want to go, right? Since she found that out, right? There's no beach in heaven. Actually, I've been trying to say this throughout because I know that the, the book of Revelation has lots of, you know, different interpretations, but I want to remind us all, much of what's written is symbolism. In fact, in the Bible, these images of, of seas <clears throat> in prophetic literature specifically is connected to the place where the beasts would rise and come and bring havoc onto the people of God. If you remember the story in Daniel, his vision has these beasts arising from the sea and coming and attacking God's people. What, what the vision is showing us here is that there's no longer, come on somebody, a source of, of chaos. There's no more beasts coming to destroy God's people and, and to stop God's work. He has been, come on, defeated. This is, what, this is what this vision is. It doesn't literally mean there's no beach in heaven. In fact, I think there's gonna be, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what it's saying is there's no more source of chaos. <clears throat> a new heaven and a new earth. Let's go on. It says this, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. If that doesn't tell you there's symbolism, then we have a city that's a bride. So obviously it's symbolism, right? Uh, let's go to the next verse. Here's what it says. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. And this is so powerful. And it speaks exactly to the biblical story. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he be their God. What was lost in the garden when we rebelled against God is found in the city when all things are restored. The, the promise of Genesis that one day the, the serpent would be crushed is fulfilled in Jesus. We are forever with the Lord. It's a powerful, powerful moment in this epic vision that John has. But then there's one more thing I wanna say first as we get started and it's, and this will be really special to many of us in this room that have really walked through some deep waters. And I want, I, want to, I want this to hit you. I want you to think about this. John then says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God isn't indifferent to our pain. He isn't unaware of our tears. They're addressed. They're not ignored. He looks at us and he wipes away our tears. There will be no more death. Someone needs to hear that. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. When it talks of a new heaven and a new earth, sometimes we can imagine that this earth here has been totally dissolved or destroyed. That isn't really, I think, what we're supposed to take from this. Instead, it's the old order of things that have been dis destroyed and, and dissolved. The old order of injustice and pain and death, the old order of a beast that's behind the persecution of, of the church or just the, 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 just the pursuit of people in a way that's, that's destructive. <clears throat> we live in the world where systems are created to keep people in, in slaves and, 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 to, and to hurt people in their lives. It's not just the church, right? It's, it's all of humanity that suffers from the rule of the beast. 
And so what, what the promise here is, is that that beast has been destroyed and now a new, a new order of things is in power. <clears throat> and so in this sermon, I'm sorry, my voice is like dying. Anyone else dying from allergies right now? Like man, right? So apologize up front. <clears throat> in this sermon, I wanna try to do a couple of things today. I wanna ask a few questions and try to bring some good answers. First, what does the New Testament say about heaven? What does the New Testament say about heaven and what's heaven gonna be like? And then I wanna try to ask this question and try to answer this. How does heaven, how does my belief in heaven change me in the here and now? So in order to try to do that, I wanna, um, I wanna in a second read some verses to you about what the Bible says about heaven. But before I do, I wanna address any of the skeptics in the room. Because if you're here and you have doubts about heaven and you're not so sure, uh, I, I wanna just say you're welcome here, right? This is the place where everyone is welcome. And, and I really, I have a lot of sympathy for you because that's the way my mind works. I, I don't just believe things just because, I, I have questions about them. And, and I ask, you know, it's really true. And how do I know? And how do I know this isn't just fantasy? How do we know heaven isn't just the, the, the result of people's unfulfilled dreams? And so we imagine a, a, a future blissful place that we'll go to after we die. You know, um, Vladimir Lenin and others in the communist regime back in the early 20th century would say that religion was the opiate of the people. It was the thing that kept poor people from rebellion because they would just, they, even though their lives were terrible, they just had this, they had this opiate, this, this painkiller that they, we called heaven that would just help them get through. Is that what heaven is? Is heaven just really something that helps the poor get through? Is it something that we just really tell ourselves because life is hard? You know, um, if you think that's just a modern attitude towards heaven, I want to give you some news. That's not just something that people in the modern era have thought. In fact, there's a Greek philosopher, Epicurus, and his philosophy about the afterlife might surprise you because I think a lot of us think that people in the ancient times were gullible. They just believed in the supernatural easier. And we in the modern era, you know, we're more educated and wise, of course. And so uh, we now know some things, right? But actually skepticism and, and skepticism about the afterlife goes all the way back. And so here's an here's a English translation of Epicurus's uh, quote that were actually found on many Roman tombstones. Uh, and so here's what it says. I was not, I was here, I am not, I don't care. And this has been applauded as like the most rational approach to life and death. There was a time where I was not, you know, before I was born, I, I didn't exist. And then I was here, so I, I existed, I, you know, I was conscious. And then I died, I am not, I don't exist anymore. And you know what, I don't care because there is no me to care because I cease to exist. And you know, that, I understand that feeling. There's a part of that that I, 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 I get because I think people look at life on earth and it's hard. It is hard. And you, and you think, you know, is, is there really any hope? But you know, I think that this approach, this cynical approach to the afterlife isn't really as honest and as, as maybe like forthright as they want to think it is. Because when you deny that there's anything after this life, you're really denying something fundamental about humanity itself, about yourself. Because 
there's something about each of us that really believes that our life matters. There's something about each of us that think, man, whether or not I'm a good person, whether or not I choose to love my family, love my wife, love my kids, whether or not I choose to do something meaningful with my life, that actually matters. It actually is important if I, if I actually do something significant with my life. But if there really isn't anything beyond this life, if there really isn't anything else, then really what does it matter if I'm a good person that loves my family or if I'm a terrible person that runs for my family? What's it matter if I do anything worthwhile at all? I was listening to a, a, a radio personality once and he was an educated talk show host of, you know, in some advanced degrees. And I think he has a background maybe with uh, Judaism. Uh, I'm not quite sure his background. It wasn't Christian, but he, he um, was getting near the end of his life and I was listening to him on the radio and he was having what you might call an existential moment. And he was just kind of thinking about his life and he'd written many books and had very well-formed thoughts um, about life and politics and the rest. And so he's having this moment where he just realizes that death is approaching. And he says, and he just kind of like unguarded, you know, he just says, I just have to believe that everything I've done with my life matters. I don't know if there's an afterlife, but I just know to my core that what I wrote was important. What I thought was important. And I think that kind of shows what I'm saying here is this idea that life is just here and now and there's nothing else. If you really believe that, you're denying something fundamental about, about yourself, that you do matter. You know, despite knowing that we live now uh, on a small planet rotating around a medium-sized star on the edge of a spiral galaxy of one of which there are billions, right? We still think we matter. And I'm gonna tell you, I think that intuition is right because we are the objects of a creator, the objects of his love. And he made us to enjoy him and, and, and everything in this world forever. In fact, this idea that uh, we have these desires, we believe we matter is so hardwired into our brains uh, that philosophers have, have said, there, there's gotta be more to that. Philosopher Jerry Walls, who's a Christian philosopher, he says these words, I think this is really powerful. He says, a good God would not create us with the kinds of aspirations that we have and then leave those aspirations unfulfilled. Think about that. We have these deep aspirations about life and sometimes we know we'll never fulfill them, but we have them. And yet, are we just to live with this sense that man, there's gotta be something more, but there really isn't. C.S. Lewis, who's always good for, you know, a good meditation moment, right? Here's what he writes. Look what he says. He says, there have been times when I think I do not desire heaven, but more often when I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts, we've ever desired anything else. You know what Lewis is saying? He's saying that these desires we have are really pointers to our true country. That these desires we have for things to be peaceful, for things to be enjoyable, for beauty to just be something that we are able to just completely just experience and not the fleeting moments of beauty that we have on earth. Let me just say this. How many of us realized that this last Friday was like one of the most 
perfect days we've had in months here in Las Vegas, right? And the reason we really loved Friday, or hopefully you did, is because it wasn't windy, right? It's like the first day it wasn't blowing like just a hurricane in this valley, right? With a sandblast and all the rest. Those are those days we just wish we could bottle up, right? I remember one time I was, uh, I was on a rafting trip through the Grand Canyon, and I was drafting down the Grand Canyon. We were drafting for eight days, seven nights. And I was in these moment, these places that are untouched by civilizations. And there was no cell phone. If you, if you got in trouble, they had a satellite phone and they would have to radio a helicopter in. I mean, that, that's how far out we were, right? And I remember being on this raft and we went around this bend and the, wall, the red wall limestone went up for a thousand feet. There was not a stitch of wind and I felt I had just walked in to paradise. I was like, if there's a heaven, it's gotta be like this. There was something about the air, something about the moment, something about the peace and the serenity that my heart felt like I had entered where God dwells. It was amazing, right? Have you been to those places and you just wish you could just freeze time? Or have you looked at the pictures of your children and just said, what, can I, what would I give to go back to those moments and to enjoy that once again? These are the things I'm talking about with our aches toward heaven. But there's another reason I believe in heaven. It's not just because we ache for another country. It's because somebody super reliable promised us heaven. Can I get an amen to that? Somebody that I can trust said, hey, there is a place I'm going and I'm gonna bring you back with me. Can I get an amen? What I wanna do right now is I just wanna read to you some passages, some places where Jesus just tells us about heaven. And I want you guys, if you want to, you can, but I want you to like in your minds, just applaud like, yes, I'm going there. Come on, I'm going there. Chris and I would always joke around because Chris with his senior year, he started doing something. He said, hey, Brad, guess what? I go, what? we're going to heaven. And he would say that to me. We're like, yeah, you're right, Chris. This isn't so bad. You still have to take your test, you know, but yeah, we're going to heaven. <laughs> All right. So here, I'm going to read these to you. And I want you to be like in your mind, like, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Okay. If you know Jesus. All right, here we go. Luke 12. Here's what Jesus says. And I want you to let this be a word right to your heart. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. John 11. Yeah, you can say John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus said it. That's awesome. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Of course I wouldn't have told you that if that were true. Because I don't lie to you. Hey, let me say, Jesus don't lie to us. Can I get an amen to that? And then he says this, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you where I am and that you can be where I am forever. Amen. John chapter Chapter 14, here's Luke 23, I love this one. And some of you know the scene. Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. To a thief hanging on the cross next to him who didn't deserve to be in paradise, but at his late hour of his life, trusted in the one who could provide paradise. In that moment of grace, Jesus says, today 
you'll be with me in paradise. Here's what, here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. Come on, somebody. That's it. Let's go. Man. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable. How many of us know that our bodies are perishable? How many of us feel that expiration date? Every day we get older, right? Like I'm feeling it, right? When the mortal is with immortality, then the saying is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. I love, I love that because that, that reminds me, that, that was probably the inspiration for the English poet, John Donne. And he, he writes this poem and, and he says, death be not proud. I love that phrase, death be not proud. Because I do think arrogance, I think death has this arrogant swagger about it, that it was ruling over the sons and daughters of God, that he was destroying our lives. And then one day, the son of God, the human one came and he stared death down and he defeated death. And now death, be not proud for you have not the final say because Jesus has rendered you powerless. That's a powerful statement. I want us to hold on to that. Here's 2 Corinthians chapter five. We are confident, I, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's a powerful thing. It's, there was a confidence that Paul had. I wanna say a swagger. He knew it. I am confident that when this body is no more, I will be at home with the Lord. I wanna talk a little bit more of that in a second. Here's, here's the last one in Revelation. Revelation 22, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be in their foreheads. But there's one more that's my favorite. And it's my favorite because it kind of leaves open the imagination a bit. It just kind of tantalizes a little peek behind the curtain and tells you there's a whole lot more than you can even picture. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter two. He says, however, as it is written, no eye has seen what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived are what? The things God has prepared for those who love him. Scott McKnight in his book, The Hope of Heaven, he writes this, and I think this is a profound thing just to, just to ponder. He says, all contemporary pleasures are designed by God to point us to the final heaven. You know, Christians have sometimes been wrong in our approach with pleasure as something to, to run from, to shut down because pleasure leads to sin, you know, as if we weren't designed to experience pleasure. It's true that sin has attached itself to pleasure. And as a result, we do all kinds of things we shouldn't in pursuit of pleasure. But pleasure itself isn't wrong. In fact, pleasure are echoes of heaven, the fragrance of, of what God has for us ahead. And that is the thing that should, should draw us not away from God and into sin, but toward God, knowing that he is the author and the finisher of the very pleasures that we feel in our hearts. There's good ahead for us, friend. There's heaven ahead. Maybe you should just tell, turn to your neighbor and say, guess what? We're going to heaven. That'd be a good time right now. We should start that habit, Chris. That's a good habit. You know, a lot of us have, uh, wrote, you know, we grew up in uh, a culture that kind of 
doesn't really know what to think of heaven. And whenever heaven's portrayed, like in the movies or cartoons, remember the, if you're older like me and the, like, you know, Daffy Duck kind of cartoons, you know, they get bonked in the head and they fly up to heaven and there's a harp and there's a cloud and that's heaven, right? And that's kind of our, our cartoonish picture, right? Some of the younger don't even know who Daffy Duck is and all that stuff. But anyway, they were much better than the current cartoons. But the point is, <laughs> a lot of us think heaven is a place of harps and a place of ghosts and a place that you really kind of maybe go to church forever or something. And that doesn't really sound like heaven. That might sound like the other place, right? An eternal church service, like, no, I don't wanna go there, right? But here's the thing, there is worship in heaven, but there's also other experiences that as I've been saying, are all shaped by what the Bible teaches heaven's really gonna be like. And you're not gonna be a disembodied ghost floating on a cloud playing a harp. That isn't what's ahead for you. In fact, if we're gonna let our imaginations kind of run a little bit, I wanna do that with some biblical truth to ground them because we can go kind of crazy with our view of what heaven might be, but I want us to kind of let our imagination be grounded in what the Bible does say about what heaven's like. And there's a key passage that gives us a really key insight that I wanna share. It's in Philippians chapter three. And Paul is writing to the Philippians and he says these words, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. If you're a Jesus follower, if you're faithful to the lamb, this is true of you. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look what he says next. This is really important. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And here we have an interesting kind of picture of the future for us. This is where Paul addresses one of the great aches of human existence, our aging and feeble bodies. He calls it the lowly body. And as I was thinking about that phrase, the lowly body, and I was thinking of aging, and I was thinking of just what it means to be embodied right now as a human in this life. And there does seem to be, if, if you could just kind of Play with me here a second with my little philosophy hat on for a second. You know, there does seem to be a mismatch between our minds and our bodies. I think that our minds are far stronger than our bodies. Our minds have far greater capacities, far greater abilities than our bodies do. Our minds are able to imagine almost anything. And as a result of that, we've been able to create and innovate crazy things. And what's ahead, who knows what the human's, human mind is gonna conceive of. And some of it's bad and some of it's good, but needless to say, our minds are, are pretty powerful. But our bodies aren't. A microscopic virus brought the entire world to its knees for the last two years. It doesn't take much to take us out. When you're young, you think you're invincible, but pretty soon the illusion of, of youth is taken away with the reality of aging. How many former athletes realize that you can't do what your mind says you can anymore, right? You used to be able to do that. You can't do that anymore. I'm gonna go back to that mismatch in a second, but I wanna go back to what this text says about Jesus and his glorious body. Let's look at the glorious body of Jesus. There's a couple of places we get a window into what the resurrected Jesus was like. One is in Luke 24, the other's in, Ma there's a text in Matthew, but then the other big one is in John 21. I'm not doing those. I'm gonna look at one in Luke 24. 
This is Jesus after he's been raised from the dead. He's got a new body. And let me just start with a paraphrase. So he's walking with his disciples. They don't recognize him. It's on Easter afternoon. They're on a walk from Jerusalem to, to this little town called Emmaus. And Jesus kind of joins these two disciples as they walk. They look really sad. Jesus says, hey, you guys look sad. What's going on? They don't recognize him. And they go, well, what do you mean what's going on? Well, yeah, you guys look like you're, you lost your best friend or something. They go, well, we did lose our best friend. Have you, haven't you, are you the only one in Jerusalem that haven't heard that Jesus of Nazareth, who we thought was maybe the Messiah was crucified? And then this morning, like we go to his tomb and it's empty and we don't know what's going on. And, and Jesus goes, oh, you guys. And he starts telling them about the prophecies in the Old Testament. And he has this long conversation with them. And they're like, wow, this guy knows a lot of stuff. Like, who is this guy, right? And so then they say, hey, hey, it's getting late. Like, come, come inside with us. We're at home now. Like, they walked that far. And Jesus goes, sure, I'll, I'll, go to, I'll go home with you. And he sit down for dinner. Jesus says, hey, let me have some of that bread. He breaks that bread. Y'all know what happens next? They recognize Jesus, and he vanishes in front of them. You know what that tells me? Jesus had superpowers. You know what that tells me? I'm going to have some superpowers. Come on. Jesus just disappears. He like, whoa. And they're like, what? That was Jesus. Like this whole time we were talking to Jesus. We didn't recognize him. So that means at least this much, you can be unrecognized and you can disappear. I cannot wait. For that ability. How many of y'all wish you could disappear sometimes? Like, I just gonna disappear. Or how many, I'll just be, I'll, I'll be unrecognizable for a minute, right? So what happens next? Well, these two go running back to Jerusalem and they run all the way back to Jerusalem. They finally get back to where all the rest of the disciples are. They're out of breath. They're explaining what just happened. And then all of a sudden they're in a room, the doors are locked, the doors are shut. And then all of a sudden, guess what happens? Jesus shows up in the middle of the room. So what does that tell you he could do? He can disappear, but then he can reappear. Man, I like that. I cannot wait to try that out. Are you with me on that, right? This powerful body that Jesus had can disappear and can reappear. He even says to his disciples, check this out, because they don't know what's going on. They're totally shocked. Hit that verse for me. One more, yeah. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. So the scars of the cross are still present on the glorified body of Jesus. But then he says, they stood in, there in disbelief and filled with joy and wonder. And he says, they, they, they really are, is it really Jesus? Is this a ghost? He's like, dude, this is, I'm not a, I don't know if he said dude, but he's like, I have, he's like, here, give me some food. Yeah. So you know what that tells me? We're going to eat in heaven. <laughs> Glorified body, you're going to eat. Yes, yes, thank you, Chris. He, he ate. <laughs> and you know that time when Jesus was at the wedding? And he wanted to show off about what the future wedding was going to be like. And he said, let me change some water into wine. Do y'all know that was like 180 gallons of wine? Let me tell you, there's going to be some good drink in heaven. Guys, I'm telling you, we are going to feast with the lamb. We are going to enjoy Jesus. We are going to be, 
This is important. We are going to be embodied. You are going to have a body. You're going to be able to do things that your mind currently wants to do, but your body can't do. The mismatch will be over and not any more sin that would stain us and keep us from, keep us in slaves. We are now able to be what we always desired and dream of being, to enjoy all the things God desired to give to us. There's joy in heaven. There's a hope in heaven. There's Jesus in heaven. There's fellowship in heaven. There's friendships in heaven. No more loneliness, no more mourning, no more pain. I wanna turn our attention to something else though. How does heaven change me today? And I was reading this book um, this week and I wanna encourage you if you're interested in this, this is a book by Scott McKnight and it's, and it's called uh, Heaven's Hope or The Hope of Heaven. I'm sorry, it's called Heaven's Promise. Sorry, I don't know why I got the other one. Um, and he writes these words, and I think this is so powerful. He said, Jesus's resurrection encourages us to face death standing in an empty tomb. Heaven, this idea that we will be raised from the dead and given a glorified body, has nourished the church through pain and grief for 2000 years in such a way that the church of Jesus was known for not being paralyzed by the fear of death. When others would run in the empire, the Christians would stay because they were not enslaved to the fear of death. Paul writes these powerful words in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, and I wanna read them to you. He says, and now dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. So you do not grieve like people who have no hope. He isn't saying we won't grieve, but our grief won't, will be blunted by the hope of heaven. We are gonna grieve. It is impossible and it would be inappropriate not to grieve but our grief isn't inconsolable. Our grief has this hope that's mixed in with the tears, this grief of being able to say, listen, I know this is wrong. And this is one more reminder that this world is broken, but I have hope in a God who's gonna come to transform me and this world into the place it was always meant to be. And he goes on and he writes these words. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when we see, when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. There will be reunion in heaven. The lost ones, that, the loved ones that we've lost, the ones that we've, we've said goodbye to in anguish will be reunited with in heaven. That was really brought home to us this week as a church staff because Pastor Mike got some terrible news just, just on, on Thursday that his sister, who's 54 years old, had an unexpected stroke. And he's rushed back to be with his family in North Dakota. Talk about how life just turns so quickly. Out of the blue, 54 years old, has a stroke. She's on life support, they've done tests. There's no brain activity. It is just so quick. And if there's ever a time that the nays need the hope of the resurrection, it's right now. I was reading this book I was telling you about. And in that book, Scott McKnight, he 
kind of lists some different stories to kind of help us really think about how important it is for us to be solid on this hope. And he tells a story of, a, of an NFL player named Chris Spielman. And Chris played for Ohio State University, and then he played for three NFL teams. In 1998, he, he was injured, and so he took a, a year off. But during about that same time, um, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And so Chris and his wife were strong believers in Jesus. And so in that moment, in that moment, Chris now realizes that he's gonna take time to really care for his wife. They have two children at that, at that time. And they start this 12 year battle with cancer. And it's breast cancer and, and about a couple years into the diagnosis, it's now at stage four, they're treating it. Um, but it's starting, to, it's starting to metastasize. And so during this battle, as many of you know, people who've gone through cancer, there are times where the treatment is working really well and there's times where it's not working so well. But even though uh, she's fighting this battle, her and her husband are able to have two other children during this time. Um, but near the end of this 12 year battle, uh, the cancer has now spread to other parts of her body. And she realizes, they both realize it's really coming to the end. And so Chris asks the question, you know, how do you tell these two younger children? Because the two older ones kind of knew what was going on, but these two young ones, one's eight and one's nine, that mommy is not gonna get any better. Hardest things you ever want to say to your child. And so Chris writes about what he does. He gathers his kids together and I'm gonna read to you what, what he says to them. Mace, Odd, uh, Mace is Macy, Audrey, Audrey. Mommy isn't gonna get any better. They start crying, but they're not inconsolable. But the news profoundly affected him. I think in their hearts, they knew this was coming. <clears throat> but there is one way she can get better, he goes on to say. When she gets to heaven, she's gonna have a whole new body. She's gonna get to do the things that mom loves to do. You know mom loves to run, loves to dance, loves to play. She'll get to do all those things and she won't ever have to worry about being sick again. And that's something that we should be very, very happy about. And then little Audrey asks this question. Will mommy get her hair back? And you know, the answer to that question is so connected to what we really believe about heaven. And he says, mommy will get all of her hair back and she'll be more beautiful than she's ever been. Maybe right now, this is where we end today with you just letting the Holy Spirit just speak to your heart about where is your treasure?